Welcome to My Life Chassidus Applied, episode 367. So in the first week of Chodesh El, this very special month, month of compassion, Chodesh HaRachamim, when God revealed His 13 attributes of divine mercy, divine compassion to Moshe Rabbeinu, up on the mountain, and Moshe was beseeching and praying to God for forgiveness. So this is a very powerful and special period in the year where we have the capacity and the ability to correct all our setbacks, all our wrongdoings, and to build even deeper and better relationships. That's what the month of El is. Melech Basada, the example the Alter Rebbe gives, the king is in the field. Before he enters his formal palace, we're capable and able, capable and able to approach the king with a smiling face. He grants all our requests. So whatever it is that we've gone through in the past year, whether it's on a personal level, on a family level, on a business level, on a professional level, on a spiritual level, we have now, this last month of the year, the ability to mend, to correct. And that's one of the most beautiful things in existence, in life itself, and in Judaism, that we have hope. We always have the capacity to rebuild, no matter what has happened, no matter what is broken. Promises, dreams, commitments, every betrayal, even the worst type, can be reconciled. But it takes work, it takes effort. And that's the energy we glean from this month of El. Someone wrote a question in this context. Is El a time of joy? Dear Rabbi Jacobson, how should we look at the month of El? On one hand, since the Talmud says when the month of Av, when the month of Av comes, we diminish in joy. So since Av is over now, do we now increase in joy? Or should we look at El in a more serious way as we are less than a month away from the judgments of the high holidays and maybe we should prepare by being more serious? Perhaps we can also combine both ways. We can be joyous in knowing that Hashem, our Father, will forgive us and give us the opportunity to correct our mistakes and become better people. Like what is said about the song of Napoleon's march, that the song implies an impending victory even before the army begins to fight. And the Rebbe adapted the song for us to sing at the closing of Yom Kippur in a similar manner as we know in advance that Hashem will accept our prayers and bless us with a successful year. I would like to hear your thoughts. May Hashem bless you with a sweet and successful new year. Okay, and the answer is correct, exactly correct. Seriousness and joy are not a contradiction. There are times when we express joy in a very open way. There are times where it's more concealed. But even when we express joy, it does not mean we're not serious. It's not frivolous, God forbid. We celebrate with joy. We serve God with joy. So the high holidays actually is called Vigilu Berada, that you celebrate with a certain tremble. The simcha is concealed within the awe. So you don't dance when you're standing in front of the king on Yom Kippur or Rosh Hashanah. 
But we dance on Sukkot, the dance of Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. That which was concealed. Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur comes out in an exuberant dance. An explosion of dance and joy is Man Simchasenu. Each day increasing all the way to Simchas Teda, the ultimate, the apex. And the same thing in Elul. On one hand, we said, Midas Arachim, Chedesh Arachim. A lot to be joyous about when the God, the King, is smiling to you and granting your requests, even in an informal way. That's joy. But the joy also comes with respect, with awe, and with a measure of discretion. Chassidus actually talks about the two levels of tshuva, tshuva tata and tshuva ilah. The lower tshuva is actually done with a little more sadness because you're dealing with cleaning up the dust, fixing that which was broken. There needs to be a certain seriousness, a certain humility. But then tshuva ilah is besimcha. Because tshuva ilah is ruach tashvelalikim asher nesana. We're returning and connecting to our source. What greater joy is there when we reconcile and we connect and reunite with our very source of life, godliness, God. That said, this month has different days. We're now, as I said, in the second week, we're going to finish the first week of El, going into the second week. This is also the week of Pasha Kiseitze. Next Shabbos will also be the 13th of El. So the 13th of El is the 124th anniversary of the Friedrich Rebbe's wedding, marriage in the year Tofresh Nun Zayin, which would then lead, just a few days later, the, Fri- the Rebbe Rashab would establish Temchit Mimim in the Sheva Brachas of the Friedrich Rebbe. So we'll talk about that as well. But let's begin with Parsha Kiseitze. Now being that this, that this Parsha is always read during this month of Elul, so as such, you can imagine then the, that there's a connection between the chapter that we read and the month. The month of accountability, the month, the month of preparation, the month of compassion, the month of Anila Deidili, this month has many, many messages and themes in it. So, let's begin with Kiseitse, um, the very message of the first verse in this Pasuk. When a person is making an accounting and looking back at their last year, looking back at all the challenges, and preparing for the new year, one of the key things and, the ch- and difficulties can be that we can get sometimes down and demoralized by saying, you know, things didn't really work as well as I wanted them to work, especially in Avedis Hashem. The Alter Rebbe already warns us, and I say warns in a good way, in the beginning of chapter 26, that we should not get depressed, because when a person feels down, they cannot fight any battle properly when a person is demoralized. And he gives the example of the two wrestlers. One can be stronger than the other, but if they're depressed, they don't have the, the energy and the passion, they will lose the battle. So Kiseitse offers us a tremendous lesson in this regard. How indeed to keep joyous, even when you're making an accounting. You know, you start making accountability of your life, it doesn't always look so great. And yet, we should always be infused with knowing that we can get through any challenge, which is the very message of Elul and these days, that though the Jewish people had built the golden calf, Moshe was praying to get 
forgiveness. And he will gain that forgiveness in Yom Kippur. So El has both elements to it. And Pashtun Kisaytse offers us this lesson. Two questions that are obvious when you read the first verse. Kisaytse in the Mochama Alevecha. V'nesat Hashem Alekecha. Biyodecha. So what does he say there? When you go out to wage war, Kisaytse, Alevecha. Over your enemies. So two words here jump out at us. Why does it say Kisaytse? It could say Kisilcham. When you will wage war, what do you have? You go out to wage war. Exit. The word tzeitzeh, yitzieh. And the second, aleivecha, should have said imeivecha, with your enemy. Or beivecha, which is another way of saying with your enemy. Explains the Rebbe. That these two words teach us a, a powerful lesson. That whatever war we fight, whether it's a physical war, we should never have to know of that. But the internal wars our own words with our own, in our, within our own psyche, between the animal soul and the divine soul, between our different impulses, between your mind and your heart, between doing what's right and what you want right now, instant gratification, different temptations, the battles we may fight with our demons, or, God forbid, with others, the times that you have to stand up for your position, for your values, so the Torah is telling us, know that every battle you fight is not within your soul. It's outside of you. The natural you is a peaceful individual, is a soul connected to the divine and to your purpose in this world. If you do indeed need to wage war, and in this world there are times we need to, whether it's psychological, emotional, spiritual, and so on, it's kiseitse. You're going out of yourself. You're going into a world. And the Shama comes into this world, against its own will, every morning, our souls return to us, why do we need protection? Because in this world, the world is a world filled with corruption and depravity and hostility. So God protects but the neshama is not, the battle is not in the turf of the soul. The battle is outside of the soul. The soul is connected to the divine all the time. So that's lesson number one. And therefore, it's aleivecha. You're always above your adversary. You're never an equal. So you should always know you have the ability. Why are there indeed such battles? Because God wants Number one, Adira betachtenim, a home in the, for the divine in this world, and this world is a dark world. And number two, to bring out the deeper strengths of the soul, which are only possible when there's resistance, when there's a challenge, when there's a battle. But never ever think that you are a warrior. You need to battle, and you have all the tools you need. As the Alter Rebbe brings from the beginning of Tanya, from the Gemara, that when a soul comes to the world, it's given an oath. But the word mashbin also means masbin. From the word vachalta v'savata, we're also sated. We're fed, we're nourished. We're downloaded within our very beings is all the strengths we will need to fight these battles. So seitse, and alevecha tells us the battles are there, but you're always above them, and you're always outside of you. So you always have the edge 
But you need to know that. You need to believe that. You need to connect to your soul. When you're tied above, you don't fall below. That your soul feels that connection. So the more soulful we are, the more we understand the purpose of why the neshama, the soul comes to this world. Kiseitse, the neshama goes out of its natural comfort zone. Like Vayetse Yaakov Be'er Sheva. As the Erechayim explains there. The Yaakov goes out of Be'er Sheva, the fountain of seven, which are the seven emotions of Atsilus. And where does it go? Vayelecharona. To the place, the wrath of God. A place that is devoid of divine revelation. A place, a hostile world, a dark world, a corrupt world. But the point is to bring the godliness there. So we know the Seitzeh in this month of El, and we know that Alevecho. So yes, we need to be accountable. We need to deal with the dust, with the grime, with any of the corruption or anything else that we may have unfortunately succumbed to in the year. But we go with that Simcha, knowing Ki Seitzel Muhammad Alevecho. Okay. Next question on this parsha. Talks about the end of the parsha. We read the parsha of Amalek. So here's the question. Why are we so consumed with remembering and erasing Amalek more than any other nation? Dear Rabbi Jacobson, in parsha Kisetsi, it talks about the commandment about remembering and erasing Amalek. It's been thousands of years since Amalek attacked us on the road. Why do we still even talk about it and not just move on and put our energy towards some, something positive? Many different nations have attacked us in the past. Why aren't we commanded to remember them every day? Why was Amalek's attacks worse than any other attack? It would seem that attacks by the Babylonians and Romans, which led to the destruction of our holy temple, temples, were worse, but we aren't commanded to remember those on a daily basis. So it's an excellent question, but this immediately reminds us that the Torah primarily talks about spiritual matters, and it hints to physical matters. So those there was a physical Amalek who attacked the Jews, when they were leaving Egypt, which that alone tells you the chutzpah, when the Jews, after they suffered for hundreds of years, someone should attack them at that vulnerable moment, tells you what Amalek is. But above all, Amalek is an archetype, something that exists even today, even when we don't have a physical Amalek. Amalek is the gematria of Suffolk, doubt. Amalek throws Asher Karcha Badera from the word Kedirus, it throws cold water on every inspiration, every passion. That's exactly what Amalek did. The Jews came out of Egypt. They were weak, vulnerable, but inspired. Amalek throws cold water, attacks them, giving them reason to feel dejected, demoralized. So Amalek exists within us to continue the theme of Elul. And with Amalek, in every generation, you have a war with Amalek because Amalek represents all that which is apathy, indifference, gladgiltikite, complacency. Ah, don't get so excited. That's the kiss of death. Better to have someone that argues with you and disagrees 
than someone that just throws cold water and says, no big thing. You get excited, inspired about something? Nah, nothing to get excited about. Doubts, uncertainties paralyze us. So Amalek represents that, and that is unique to Amalek. Every nation, Chassidus explains how every nation had its own klipa, its own challenge. There's Midian, there's Machlekes, idea of, of, uh, of um, divisiveness. And Bovel and Rome also have their particular klipa. Mitzrayim, of course, is the root of all klippas. Mitzrayim is all limitations and constraints. Mitzrayim from the word Mitzrayim. But here we're not discussing them. Each one of them has their particular negative energy. I believe we spoke about it in a previous episode in my life. I'm talking about Amalek. So Amalek, the Torah reserves special mention, special mitzvah, which Baruchni, spirituality, exists today too. Especially in, in times when we're comfortable, when we tend to become complacent. That's what comfort, with the blessings of comfort, comes also a certain type of apathy. And that's why it's so important to remember and to erase and to battle. Okay. Another question in this week's Parsha. Is God violating the prohibition of withholding payment to a worker by not bringing Mashiach after all our work in Golis? Dear Rabbi Jacobson, in this week's Parsha Kiseitse, it discusses the commandment to pay workers on time. Le Solon write, on time meaning the day after they worked, the same day you should pay them. We have been taught that everything Hashem commands us to do, He also does. Therefore, since we have been observing Torah Mitzvahs for thousands of years, and we were promised Mashiach a long time ago, is Hashem violating the rules by not paying us on time? An excellent question. And the Rebbe himself addressed it. If you go to the Kutis Sichas, volume 29, the third Sich on Parshat Kisaitse, the whole Sich is dedicated to this. Brings this uh, din, this Posuk, even adds that we are compared to workers for Hashem, that God is like the employer, we're the employees. So, what's going on? And he explains it. He brings commentaries that also ask this question. But the Rebbe explains it according to Tanya Perek Lamedvov. Since all our work, the work we do, is not just a day-to-day thing. Throughout the Meshach Zmanagol, Masein of Avadisenu, in chapter 37, the beginning of 37 of Tanya, continuing the theme of chapter 36, that the purpose is to make a deal with So it's not the job of one person, it's the job of generations. So the end of generation, Mashiach Taka will come. The din is that the worker has to get paid. They will get paid. But when the job is complete. And that means it's a collective work of generations. This doesn't mean, God forbid, that it should be delayed. The Rebbe there at the same time also said, and I remember the Sikhs when the Rebbe spoke about it in the 80s, Mem Hey, Mem Zayin, I believe. The Rebbe said, but we've already done all the work by now. And we already did tshuva. And so when the Gemara says, kola, kola, kitzim, all the deadlines have been, have, have, been, have been reached, and the, only thing, and, the, and the only thing that remains is shuva, we've done that too. So of course we demand that God finally pay the worker. But it explains why it didn't happen right away. When one person did a mitzvah, 
because you need to ha- have the Masenu Bavadasenu Meshach's Man Hagolis. The Sikha there elaborates more on this topic. It's a very good topic to discuss because God, yes, is obligated like we are. He does all the mitzvahs we do. So we could demand, and that's why we do, that we've done the work and Hashem should finally repay us, pay us for all that labor with the Gula Amitis Vashlem. There's a bunch of other questions connected to the Parsha. Let's do a few more. Is there a reason that according to Torah law, only a man can initiate a legal divorce by writing and delivering a get? So in this Parsha, we also have the din of get, of gittin. And of course, the big question that everyone asks, is there a reason that according to Torah law, only a man can initiate a legal divorce? Why can't a woman initiate and we know the abuse of this, what can happen, is when a man decides to withhold a get, he can keep his wife an aguna, and people have abused it and continue to abuse it. So this is a good opportunity to make a very loud protest, a macha, that's simply absolutely not menschlich a thing. Even if you have grievances, there's, first of all, there's a court of law, a bezdin, where you can hear those grievances, but to blackmail someone, to hold back the ability where some men even go ahead and they go get married to make sure their wives remain chained in Aguna is despicable. And yet the Torah did give men that power. Not to withhold, the power to initiate. So the Torah, is not a question on the Torah because the Torah didn't assume, assume that everybody is going to be a mensch. The Torah is given to people to be mentioned. You don't need a mitzvah, be a mensch. The fact that people can use Teda, novel Bereshusa Teda, to be obnoxious, so-called with the license of Teda, finding loopholes or covering themselves with halacha, the Teda obviously knew that, the Ramban writes it, and that's also a tremendous travesty and crime, but that's part of free will, that all of us can unfortunately do things that are inappropriate and sometimes dress it up, so-called, in the garb of holiness. So that too needs to be absolutely um, protested and eradicated from our midst. But why taka then? So the tater is expecting people to behave like mensch. The tater gives someone power, like a rabbi or a leader or a rov. You could say, well, how could the tater give them power? They can abuse it. Well, the tater understands that a person has free will and the tater is expecting that you live up to, your, to, to the obligations. So the fact that a man has certain rights is one thing. Parents, for example, God gave, you could ask a bigger question. God gave entrusted young, beautiful souls a gift from God to, to parents. Can parents mess it up? Yes, and they have, and they do, unfortunately. So you'd say, why would God do that? Because he's expecting us to behave properly. Expecting us to be normal people. When you have children, you're going to protect them and definitely not hurt them. That's the Aveda that we have in this world. In other words, there is risk in this world. If all Neshama stayed in Gan Eden, we wouldn't have these risks. Because there, there's no corruption and there's no body altogether. There's no physical challenges. There's no all the phobias and the neurosis and, and, the, and the dysfunctionality that exists is only in this world. And yet this is the place, the purpose to make a Dira So that explains why it's possible. As Hashem said to Moshe, 
Those that want to make a mistake will make a mistake. In other words, God created a world where you can make a mistake and he's ready to take the risk because the gain is so much worth it because it will transform this world and make a dinner. But that's Nesav HaKadosh Baruch in Atzmus itself, what God desired. But still, taking that into consideration, so why Taket does a man have certain rights? Well, the same question can be asked. Women have certain strengths that a man don't have. Everyone has their role to play. And when they're doing it right, we don't have the issue if it wasn't abused. Now, why Taka? Well, it goes back to marriage itself. Ish darke lichbesh, it says. The man, his role, his personality is the one, the go-getter. She should be going out and pursuing and finding a shidduch. A woman is kfud bas melech penima. She's an intimate energy, an internal energy. A man is a expressive energy. So going in the language of Chassidus, there's an oir, legalis lechutz, legalis leelimus, an energy that goes out, and there's an energy that goes within. The energy within is a far deeper one. But in order to transform this world, we need both energies. Like the Gemara says in Yevamas, the man goes out, he toils in the field, and he brings back grain, and the woman bakes it and makes it into a challah, into bread. He brings back flax and other such products and the woman turns it into a garment. That's the partnership. The man has physical brute, more, more strength, more brute strength. Why? Because that's his role. His role is to take, an, a, take a world that is hostile and the elements need to be tamed. So you need something to, to deal with that. You need the warrior. Darke lichbesh. A woman's role is to take that and turn it into something beautiful, something useful. Like the Rebbe, the famous Chav Beis Shvat, B'chol Yevorich Yisrael Sichu. But the Rebbe, the Rebbe says, the Rebbe says there that Adira B'tachtenim, Adira has two parts. One is an actual physical home. Like when you build a home. Shelter, you need a roof over your head in a place where people can, families can congregate and live. But that still doesn't tell you what kind of home it is. You could also have a home bare bones. Then there's a dira a beautiful home, which is marchivay daite expands the mind. And the Rebbe said the name chaye mushka has both elements. Chaye, it brings vitality into the home. And mushka, a scent, an aroma, a beautiful aroma, a spirit. So in a dira, the same, the physical person who's stronger is the one that's sent out into the fields to chop wood or do whatever he has to do in order to tame the elements. That's why a man makes Kiddush, even though a woman can make Kiddush, but makes Kiddush, yayin. wine is a symbol of aggression and strength. He sanctifies the man. And the woman lights the candles. Primarily that's her role. Even though, as I said, each one can do the other. But you see, that's a traditional partnership. Lighting a candle is not fighting aggression. Lighting a candle, a little light dispels darkness. It brings beauty, it brings warmth, it brings a vibe, an, an aura into the home. So when it comes to the get, the same idea. It's the man, just as he was the one obligated to go out and do it, he's the one obligated to go give the get. But he's obligated to do it. So we're not talking about someone who abuses it, going back to that theme. Abuser is an abuser, which is the worst of all crimes. But 
to understand why, that's why, and this explains many other mitzvahs that men are given the obligation to do because that's their role. And women have an equal partnership in the role they have and what they accomplish in this world. And you need both. And overlap as well. Okay. Next question. In last week's, last week's parasha, Sheftim, that is, we learn about the Egla Arufa. From, from it, we can also derive a general lesson that the community is responsible for the welfare of all its residents. Correct. We discussed it last week. In this parasha, we learn about the Ben Seder Amera. Another element in this parasha, Ben Seder Amera, is the rebellious son. The Teda elaborates what that means. So the person is writing, can we also assign responsibility to the community if a teenager goes wayward and rebels? And if so, what can the community do to help the wayward teen to get back on track to leading a productive life? Now, the Torah says, the Gemara does say, Ben there's that opinion, that it never happened, never will happen. And it's just really meant in order to teach us the lessons of how to make sure that a child grows up the proper way. So in other words, it's really more to, for us to learn, but not actually that there's such a reality. But there's no question there's lessons, lessons for parents and lessons for community, that we are responsible to educate our children, as I said before, not only not to hurt them, but to educate them, to inspire them. So you can learn from every verse of the Ben Seder Amedi, you can absolutely learn lessons in what we need to do to make sure a child is the most refined possible child. Today we have many of these challenges in our homes. Aim by is below Every house has its challenges. And it's not about pointing fingers now who's to blame and who's not to blame. Because you could say one second the Ben Seder Amedi is the fault of the parents. It just happens to be this child is a rebellious child. Well, it's not so simple. Yes, a person can be born with certain aggressive features and personality and disposition, but it's still the incumbent that parents from the youngest age, even, with, even in pregnancy, a mother be careful what she reads, what she takes in, what environment she's in. Something the Rebbe talks about. And especially in the young age, when the child is born, to make sure the child is surrounded with holiness, with purity, with innocence, nurtured, loved, cared for unconditionally. And as the child grows, to always teach them through love. And even when discipline is necessary, also through love. Not over-critical and demoralizing and undermining and invalidating a child, God forbid. So there's lessons upon lessons that we can learn of what we need to do to make sure our children come out and grow into adults that are the most productive and don't have to fight demons and can spend their time expressing and bringing light into the world. So there's no question that that is part of the lessons from this uh, Pasha. And finally a more difficult topic, but it also segues from what we just spoke about. This parasha also talks about the mamzer. So someone writes the question, what exactly is a mamzer? 
And why is a mamza punished for the sins of their parents? It doesn't, that doesn't seem fair. If mamzerim are only able to marry other mamzerim and their children also mamzerim, or can their offspring eventually join mainstream Klad Yisrael? Should someone start an online dating app called Mamzer? <laughs> I know, it's a, it's a bad joke. Called Mamzer is the word to make it easier for them to meet each other. I don't think I would advise that. Well, a Mamzer is a halacha categorization of a child born, not from two singles having a relationship even if they're not married, but from two married people who are married to different spouses and while they're married have, a, have an affair and give birth to a child. Now the child is not responsible for the parents, its parents, its biological parents' transgression, but it comes to teach us the consequences when people have an illicit relationship like that. That it's not just you're cheating on your spouse, you're also creating something that is unholy. Now, why would a soul have to come down and suffer like that, be categorized like that? That's another discussion. Well, maybe it's part of this discussion, the mystery of why certain souls come down in this world. Some grow into homes that are very unhealthy. Souls that come down into handicapped bodies have all kinds of different defects, mental illness, Down syndrome. We spoke about this a while back when we spoke from the Derech Mitzvah Maimer from the Alter Rebbe, Samach Tzedek cites about the mum, the Bali mum of the Kohanim. They can't serve in the temple if they have any defect. And what that means and the significance of that. So it really deserves its own discussion of why certain souls come. Is it a tikkun for them, some type of repair for a previous reincarnation? Is it that they in some way help us all heal? That's what this, that mimer says. That helps us all heal all the wounds of the world. They represent the wounds. But that's more on the level of what the soul of this Nebuch, this child that was born. But the Torah is coming to tell us. It's not to punish the child. It's coming to tell parents of how sacred a relationship is. And there are consequences. You may not think there are consequences. People think, you know, just fool around. And who's, who know, who's going to see? Who's going to know? But when you realize that there can be born a child that will live forever, and I say forever means generations, until ten, ten generations as the halacha state in, based on the psukim, but there'll be something that comes out of it that means something toxic has entered this world. And again, from the point of view of the child, it can be a, a profound way of healing himself and others. But from the point of view of the parents that did this terrible thing, that there are real consequences. And as sad as it is to hear, the Torah doesn't mince words when it comes to matters like this. So it's telling us there's consequences of your behavior. And especially when talking about an Aisha Sish, a woman that's married, having a relationship outside of her marriage. And of course the man as well. Creating something that lives on. So by knowing that, that should be the best, the greatest and the best deterrent of any such forms of behavior. Now, on a broader scale, the truth is with anything we do, anything illicit, anything inappropriate, also has consequences. It's not punishment. It's cause and effect. You put your hand in fire, it gets burnt. Don't think that just because you minimize it that it's really minimized. There are real true consequences.
So we shouldn't talk about all these things and maybe finally come to a time where all this will be eliminated with the coming of Mashiach. Okay. So going over to Yud Gimel Elul now, 13th of Elul. So yes, Tafresh Nun Zayin was the marriage of the Friedrich Rebbe with Rebbe Tzinachamadina, the daughter of Rabbi Avram Shneerson of Kishinev, who himself was a grandson of one of the children of the Tzamech Tzedek. The wedding was in the city of Lubavitch. It was on Friday. The custom then was very often to make weddings on Friday. So the chuppah was close to Shabbos. And then they went in. The Suda Shabbos was also the Suda Mitzvah, the Suda Yomtev, the Yomtev, the Suda Chasana, of the Mitzvah of the Chasana. The Rebbe Rashab went around saying, giving L'chaim to the guests. He also said the Maimer, beginning Samach to Samach, the famous Maimer, which he continued saying throughout the week. And now we have a long Hemshel. This was said in honor of the Friedrich Rebbe. And as I mentioned before, just a day, two days later, he established Temchetim formally. So just one last, two lessons we can derive from this. The Rabbeim did, or Mishtadl, made effort to make marriages in the month of Elul, or Kislev. The Rebbe was married in Kislev. But Yud Gimel El, and then you have the, the, the wedding of the, of the Rebbe Rashab and Yud Aleph El. Why? Because El is the month of Anila Deidi Vedeidili, Mazole Psula, the Mazel, the sign is Psula, Virgo. And Anila Deidi Vedeidili, the human being, husband and wife, are a model for God and the Jewish people. And that's where it evolved from. So what better time to do a wedding than the month of El? Specifically in this case, we see that a wet marriage, just like in a negative way I just discussed, in a very negative way, there are consequences. There are also positive fruits that are born from a marriage. Of course, the first thing, children. And the Friedrich Rebbe and the Rebbe Tzun would go on to have three children. The middle one being Rebbe Tzun Chaim Mushka, who would end up marrying the Rebbe. But more than that, the, the birth of the Maimet Samach to Samach was a birthing coming out, of, coming out of the marriage. And then there's Yeshiva. The Yeshiva's Temchet Mimim, the established Yeshiva that the Rebbe, Rebbe Rashab established. A training camp, so to speak, for Kola Yetzel Muhammad's Beis David. That all the students coming out would become the Shluchim of the Rabbeim. And the Rebbe, of course, took it to a whole other level. A place where this, that taught young men, and by extension also women in the women's schools, in the ways of Teir and Chassidus, to become proactive leaders in their respective communities. And we see the effect that it's had on the entire world. All born out of the marriage. So the lesson to all of us is, our marriages are sacred. Our relationships are holy. And they bear fruit, beautiful fruit, fruit, perpetual fruit, that don't just last one generation, they go generation after generation. So everything you do has eternal impact. Nothing is negligible. It's not just temporary and impermanent. Permanent impact. And that's why we say to be a binyanadeyad in every marriage, an eternal edifice. We say adeyad, like the double eternal. Ayusedia Teira Mitzvah, on the foundations of Teira Mitzvah, as the Rebbe adds, Kefisha Himu Arim, 
as they are illuminated by by the inner, the soul of Teir. Because that creates the fertile ground for producing the right fruit. A house that gives off light and will be blessed with children, healthy children, that will give off light. And fulfilling the purpose in your own microcosmic dira of making a lasses ladies border dira betachtein in my home for God and the entire world. Through our teda mitzvahs, my paid mitzvahs, mitzvahs are compared to paid as the fruit, the offspring. Till the same shall sadikim maisim tevim, the children, the offspring of sadikim are their good deeds. So we produce, and that's what the point of it all is. So Gimel El offers that as a lesson among other lessons that one can derive from it. Following up, last week's Shaftim, we spoke about um, many different aspects of it, but someone wrote a question, so I'll just follow up on that and say like this. Can we apply their prohibition to return to Egypt due to, due to its depravity can we apply that to, to avoiding living in depraved communities in society today? To our fearless galactic mashpia Reb Simon, greetings and blessings. We learned in Pasha Shaftim that we're not allowed to dwell in Mitzrayim. The Rebbe quotes in Asiche, the Rambam, Basically, the Rambam says, so we shouldn't learn from their denying of God and their behavior, which is despicable behavior that goes against Tera. As the coast, well, as different parts in the USA generally sink, and in general in the West, sink into the lowest levels of depravity, At what point do we understand the prohibition of dwelling in Egypt to referring to modern leftist secular culture? Before answering the question, let me just refer you to um, two places the Rebbe speaks about this uh, prohibition, especially in context of the Rambam, who actually lived in Egypt. And it says in places that he would sign his letters when he lived there, to someone who's being over, who's transgressing three lavim every day because of living in Egypt. So how do you actually reconcile and explain it? So look at Lukutisichis, volume 8, page 246. It's a large footnote there that Rebbe speaks about it. And there's a whole sikh of it in Chelik Yutes, Lukutisichis, volume 19, in Sheftim, on this whole topic. As far as this question, well... Though we can learn lessons from every mitzvah and from every prohibition, we have, to ask also be, we have to also be careful of how far to go. To say that there's a prohibition to live in uh, certain places because there's corruption or depravity, well, there is, in general, the Torah tells us that live in a city with people that are that are mitzvahs and that places that are more conducive to Avedis Hashem. But especially today, where is there a place like that that you can find that's completely pure like that? More importantly, the Rebbe sent his shluchim out. Many of those cities, most of them have certain elements of them that you can say fit into the depravity level. 
But that's our role, is to come and change that. So to make a prohibition like that, we have to be careful. Now, why did the Rebbe do that, even though it says stay in the community? Because the Rebbe felt, Bekoach Nefesh, and we're finishing the Berurim, Bekoach Nefesh, meaning the Jews, and even the non-Jews, who need inspiration. And many of them are Tenekesh and Ishbuf, not all of them, which means it's not their fault. So we're here to bring light and to inspire and to build, and, and, and indeed that has happened. Um, so that's the main reason. Now the Rebbe, of course, as a leader, as a Rebbe, knows when you can do that. And he took a chreis, and uh, he said, when you're that we have the strength to be able to achieve particularly that. So therefore, I would stay away from prohibitions. I would just say that, yes, of course we have to learn that we should not be influenced by our environment. We should influence our environment. That's the main lesson I would take out of that. Okay. Now, it's an unrelated question to all of this, but in general, we're now in the Sefer Dvorim, which is the last Sefer of Chumash. Moshe Mepi'atzmei, I mean, this is a Sefer that Moshe speaks. So you see he's speaking I in the first person. So this and, and so throughout the whole Sefer, these are the last, well, basically, the will and testament, if you wish, and instructions that Moshe was giving the Jewish people, beginning from Rosh Chodesh Shvat, which when Sefer Ela Advarim, the beginning, Sefer Advarim begins with that, Bechedesh Hazeh, in, the, in, the, in the, the tenth month, on the first day when Moshe began to deliver his words, Ela Advarim, these are the words, and all the way till the end of the Sefer that talks on Zayin Oder, when Moshe finally, fortunately, is nostalgic. So, Someone asked the following question. Dear Sunday night Chesidus hero, if we can sum up Moshe Rabbeinu's final address to the nation, what would be the main point? What would be the main point? And did we fulfill Moshe's wishes? I would like to hear your informed opinion. In my opinion, the main point was Sur Merava Seitev, stay away from the negative and do good. If we do the mitzvahs, then God will support us, etc. Looking at today's religious world, and all the big yeshivas and shuls we build and use, all the acts of chesed we do, not, we do, how we use all the latest technologies for mitzvahs, such as using YouTube to, reach Torah, to teach Torah and chesedis. I'd say we're doing a good job, and therefore Hashem must fulfill His promise to Meshach Rabbeinu that He will support us, and the, and, the best, and the best way He can show His support is to send Mashiach immediately, in a revealed manner in our physical world so everyone can see and feel the Gula in actuality. Well, yes, there are many great things being done, but that doesn't mean we can't do more and doesn't mean there's some things that still need improvement. I will say the following, to sum it up, well, look, he could use the Pasuk in Parsha Seikah, V'ati Yisrael ma'ach shem alekech hashel mi'imuch, kim liyiras hashem alekein. What is already God asking you? Moshe says, only to fear him, to be in awe of him, to respect him, to fulfill what he wants you to fulfill. The Gemara asks, what do you mean? Is it, that's all he wants, as if it's a small thing. Is fearing God such a small thing? So the Gemara says, Yes, it is. The God Moshe, it's a small thing. The Al-Tareb in Perik Membez, chapter 20, 42 in Tanya says, what is the answer? The answer to the God Moshe, the question is about us, the people. So the Alter Rebbe explains every one of us has a Moshe within us. So you could sum it up in that way. It's about having a relationship with Hashem. I would also cite the Pesach that the Alter Rebbe bases the whole Tanya. 
It's also in this, in this uh, Sefer Dvarim, in the last words of Moshe, that the Torah mitzvah is not, it's not distant, and not across a wide sea, and and not in heaven. Ki, ki. However, truth is, that this thing, this relationship with God, this Torah mitzvah, tshuva, however you explain the Dover Adover, is karev, is relevant, is accessible to you in your mouth, in your speech, in your heart, in your actions, in thought, speech, and action. And the whole Tanya is based to explain how that's relevant and accessible. So that's how I would sum it up. But at the end of the day, it's the whole Torah. The Torah came to give us a blueprint, to give us an operator's, the life operator's manual from Hashem's mandate to us, how to fulfill the purpose of existence, how to fulfill your and my mission in this world through Torah and mitzvahs and all the details involved in that. And Moshe was summing it up, but also with inspirational words, empowering them, and not just them, for generations to come till this day. Moshe's words live on, that these are the words that Moshe, the last words Moshe said to us. In a follow-up question in this context, dear Rabbi Simon Jacobson, with all the decades of hard work that Rebbe did to bring awareness to the world about Mashiach, and all the mitzvahs he inspired us to do, which made the world a better place and made the world ready for Mashiach, how can we understand God's seemingly cruel decision to allow Gimel Tamos to happen? And therefore the Rebbe isn't here in a physical body, to see and enjoy the era of revelation of Mashiach and enjoy seeing the fruit of his labor. Are there similarities to Moshe preparing the Jews to enter Israel but not being able to physically go himself and enjoy being in Israel? In Moshe's case, we are taught he was being punished because he hit the rock. And for cases where large groups rebelled and worshipped idols during his leadership, so God was telling him, if you were a better leader, some of the sins that occurred in the desert wouldn't have happened, etc. But never ever... Has anyone accused the Rebbe of doing anything wrong, Chaz Shalom, or not being an amazing leader? And on the contrary, he was a holy man, a tzaddik, a great leader, because he inspired, and with his charisma, he inspired with his charisma. And Mashiach will come in our generation directly because the Rebbe inspired us to do all we can to bring Mashiach. I know we can't understand God's mind or his plan, but at the very least, would you agree that from our human perspective, that it's unfair the Rebbe isn't here in a physical body to enjoy Mashiach with us. Short answer, of course I feel that way. But as you said correctly, it's not up to us. And there are uh, uncanny similarities. Remember, Moshe not going to Etzisar was much more than just because of what the things he did or didn't do. Besides the fact that a captain goes with a ship, and as long as his people couldn't go into Etzisar, because they all died except Kolov and Yeshua, so Moshe did not go. Besides that, see the sites from Tzvarim, that had Moshe gone into Eretz Yisrael, Mashiach would have come. The time was not yet for Mashiach to come, so Moshe couldn't go into Eretz Yisrael. The same you could apply to the Rebbe. We did not do what we had to do yet, so the Rebbe can't go into the Gula without us, even if he's completely on that level, and he's definitely on that level. So the Rebbe told us, marching orders, I did whatever I can, now do what you have to do. There's no doubt that if we do what we have to do, the Rebbe will rejoin us and we'll go to the Gula. 
Is it unfair? Of course we'd love no Gimel Tammuz, and we'd love that we could already march into the Gula without all this concealment, already 27 years since Gimel Tammuz. Of course we'd want that. But clearly we can't just talk about what could have been, what would have been, and we can't sit and complain. We have to look at ourselves. What do you and I have to do? That's the way how I would address it. With that, the next questioner asks, is it possible that Mashiach won't come in this generation? I'll add, God forbid. What is the difference between seeing something in actuality or hearing about it years later? Which is more advantageous? The, the, the generation that actually saw all the miracles of Yitzhiyah's Mitzrayim and was present at Mount Sinai to receive the Torah didn't actually make it into Israel. Their children and grandchildren who didn't see it but only heard about the miracles did make it out of the desert into Israel. My fear is that if history repeats itself, those of us that saw the Rebbe before Gimel Tammuz might not see Mashiach and perhaps only our children that weren't alive before Gimel Tammuz and only heard about the Rebbe and how he inspired so many people to increase in doing mitzvahs will get to see Mashiach. Please, please relate some of the guarantees that the Rebbe gave us to let us know that Mashiach will come in our generation to offset my fears. Thank you. So first of all, if your fear shouldn't be driving your life, nor anyone's life. The Rebbe said, Zodeh Rashvi, he gave us marching orders. The only way I could answer this question is, no, we don't think like that. We don't think in fatalistic terms that that's because it happened then, that's why it's going to happen now. The contrary. We learn from then that it shouldn't happen now. But that's up to you and I. This is not just about guarantees. What are you and I going to do? I, for one, can say, honestly, I do not feel I. I'm not going to point my finger to anyone else, myself, that I've done everything I can to bring Gula. I know I haven't. I know things that could be done, that will, would work, that I haven't done for whatever reason. I'm not giving excuses. So that's the only question I ask myself. I don't have a question about the Rebbe or about God. They, they I'm not worried about. I'm worried about, about myself and about us, what we need to do. We were given by the Rebbe all the resources, years and years and years. No one can say we don't have the resources, the information, the direction, the approach, the way to explain chassidus. What's lacking is our job of your futsu, of distributing it and reaching as many people as possible, a critical mass. Now, could the gula come without us doing all that work? Of course it can come. We hope it does. But we can't think like that. We have to think, what am I going to do today and tomorrow and the next day? So that's how I address something like this. I'm not looking for reassurances. I have no doubt that the Rebbe's words, are eternal and are real. That this will be the last generation in Gauls and the first in the Gula. But he also said, we have to do something about it. So my focus is not on the Rebbe's promise, but on what we need to do to make sure that promise is realized. Simple as that. And I hope that I convey that accurately and that you feel the same way as you hear it from me. Moving to another question, as you see, there's a lot of different questions and I'm starting to try to catch up. There's a lot of backlog as well. But we move along and do what we can. So the next question is, what will it take... To have God answer our prayers to prevent tragedies. In the past year, we unfortunately had many tragedies. 
Finally, our prayers were answered and we have communal good news. A child who was lost during a camp excursion was found safe a few hours later. Thank you, Hashem. May Hashem continue to make miracles and protect us. What did we do differently during this serious situation to make God answer our prayers that we didn't do during previous serious situations that turned into tragedies? What shall I say? God hears all our prayers. How he answers, sometimes we see it in a revealed, open way, exactly as we want it. Sometimes we see an answer, but not the way we expected or wanted it. And sometimes the answer comes a little later. So we have to continue doing what we have to do. I cannot answer why did God not answer the prayers to save lives that we know passed away in tragic ways, whether it's during collapses or or other things or COVID and so on. I don't have an answer for that question. But we firmly believe God heard the prayers and sometimes he says no. Or maybe his no sounds no to us, but it's really not a no, it's a yes, but in time you'll understand. We need to continue doing what we did, like I said before. I think I see a constant recurring theme here. And I have to speak, I'll speak from my heart right now. Well, I hope I'm speaking all the time from my heart, but especially these words. If I learned anything from the Rebbe, and from Tehra and from Chassidus, it's this. We don't look to someone else to do the job that you and I have to do. I don't want to use the word childish and immature, but it is somewhat. To point to the Rebbe or to God and say, why are you doing this or doing not doing something, is not what we are given the responsibility to do. Our responsibility is to do what you have to do. Can you pray to the Ebers, to the Rahmanus? Of course you can. But if one second that becomes an excuse and delays that you don't do what you have to do because it's not, what could I do? I did everything, it's up to God. No, that's not what we were taught. If the Rabbeim had that attitude, we wouldn't have Chabad altogether. Because there are many setbacks. Look at the Friedrich Rebbe's life. Look at all the challenges, the arrests, their near deaths, the health issues. And the Rebbe coming to leadership five years after the Holocaust, after World War II. Everyone could find excuses and say, what a second, look, the Jewish people were decimated. Let's just lick our wounds. Let's go on vacation. Let's just get a little calm and peace. That's not how we were trained to do. We were trained to be soldiers, to march forward, to do what, everything we have to do. Is there a human tendency and temptation to like slow down or like say, hey, what do you want from me? I'm a weak person. Blame someone else or turn to God. Of course there is. But that's not how we were trained. And I'm sitting here with a platform called My Life Chassidus Applied. I have to, with integrity and honestly and with sincerity, convey what I was taught. Is it easier just to not do? Of course it's easier. But that's not how we were trained. So I'm not saying this, God forbid, to criticize any of the questions. I read them fully and I'll read them on and I'll continue to read them. And people, people have a right to cry out. We are children of God's. We're children of the Rebbe's, and we can cry to our father and say, have Rachmanes, what else do you want from us? But on a mature level, we have to ask ourselves, what are you doing about it? And that's where I keep going to that point again and again and again. So there are many things we will not understand. We do not know why, but we know and we have to ask, what are we going to do about it? And that's also an empowering statement. It means you could do something. You're not a victim. You're not a product of circumstances. 
You have the power to be proactive. I, how Hashem works it out and cooperates, I'm not worried about God. I'm not worried about the Rebbe. They know what they're doing. We have to figure out what we need to do. That's how we have to look at it. And that's the ultimate role. That's the thing we have to figure out. We're not, we're not asked the question whether we could do it or not. We have to figure out how to do it. Okay. How do I help my son make the right decision about moving away from us? This is a question that just came in. It was very touching to me, so I said, you know what, let me read it this week. Hello, Rabbi. Sorry, my English is not good. I live, well, I'm not going to read exactly the English, the broken English, but I'll, I live in Poland because staying here, I stay here to respect and do maintenance for old community cemeteries. Many times visitors come from America to pray here, and they tell me I have a big merit for because of my job here. My family have been caretakers of cemeteries for many generations. My son's saying he, does not, he no longer wants to work with me here, and he wants to go to college and live in America. What can I show him in Torah to help him decide? What can I show him in Torah to help him decide what he wants to do? Signed by this individual. Thank you. Well, a general question: The Torah does give us instruction about everything in life. So the Torah's approach to this issue is to weigh all the factors. Now let's go through those factors. Every person has their destiny and has their mission in this world. It could be his mission may be partly to be with you and work there, or it could be not. There's the concept of b'mokim shali bechafetz. It talks about where you start learning Torah, where your heart desires, but it also can be broadened. In general, it's best when a person fulfills their mission in the areas where they have passion. If you start pulling teeth and it's very difficult, you have to look elsewhere. Now, sometimes your mission is a difficult one. But I'm not talking now. I'm talking if your son, you're sitting with your son. If I was sitting with him, I would ask him, why do you want to go to America? What are you driving toward? What are your goals? And if indeed those goals make sense, it could very well be that's his mission, to move on. So I would advise, if you can, talk to your son and say, maybe you want to speak to someone that's not the father, not your New Year's father, that's too close to him, someone that's more objective, an outsider, that he can get some advice from. It could be a mentor, it could be a coach, maybe someone living, you, living by you. If he wants to call me, I'm happy to speak to him. I've never met him, I believe, but... I'm happy to speak to them. But that's how you go about this. To first understand what are the circumstances and what are the reasons. And it could be very good, legitimate reasons. That's how the Torah answers and directs us to behave with such a question. And this is really applicable to so many different areas as well. Okay. With that, I've had a lot of questions about Mashiach. And uh, this really began Chav Ches Nissen time, when it's 30 years from when the Rebbe said, the Siche, do everything you can. And I went through them back then and, and intermittently. So I still have a few more, and I'm just simply trying to fit them in. So let me just... Um, go through a few more questions. Some about Mashiach, some about Chis HaMesim. So I'll just do, I mean, I, I don't know why I'm beginning with this one, but 
Will we still have alternate side parking in Crown Heights and in other places when Mashiach comes? My question is, meant, is not meant to be humorous. Oh no, let me correct that. My question is meant to be humorous. But the serious question is, when Mashiach comes, will our daily burdens be eased so we can dedicate more time to spiritual matters? Well, yes, exactly. As the words of the Rambam, Lo that the business of the world, its occupation, will be nothing but to, to know God, which means everything in the material world will be for a higher purpose. <laughs> About alternate side parking or other annoyances like that, I mean, there's a reason for it is to keep the streets clean or to, get, or to fill the coffers of uh, the city. Um, but the point being is that when Mashiach comes, our focus is going to be on spiritual divine matters. That's correct. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, Firstly, may God bless your parents for creating you and raising you right and giving you the tools to make these amazing Torah programs every week. Thank you. My question is this. It says in a few places that when Mashiach comes, that God will take the sun out of its shell and it will be very hot outside. Does this imply Mashiach will come in the summer? But that, not, 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 that may not make sense because when it's summer in the northern hemisphere, it's winter in the southern hemisphere. And wouldn't Mashiach have to be revealed to, revealed to everyone simultaneously? Does perhaps the Midrashim that say it, it will be hot give, are giving an allusion to an era of global warming, which many scientists say, say we are currently in? Okay. Well, to answer these uh, questions like this. First of all, the reason that Hashem will take the sun is not about heat or cold. It's about spiritual revelation. Shem Shemogin Hashem Alekim. Today, the Shemesh has a shell like Alekim, somewhat of a concealment, that filter, a shade that allows the sun to be received. When Mashiach comes, the revelation will be so great, we'll be able to receive it directly. Now, does that also mean heat? Yes, well, the Gemara does talk about that it will be hot, and sukkah will be a mitzvah that Hashem will test the nations with. Will they sit in a sukkah even though it's hot? The Gemara does talk about that. Generally speaking, heat it says in my Mordech Siddhis, it's easier to serve God in the summer than in the winter. Because heat represents more warmth and passion and divine revelation. Now, God created also winter. So Mashiach can come anytime. It doesn't say anywhere that Mashiach is going to come one season or another. Not that I know of. There are times it says what location he'll come in. Some say in the Galil, some places, different places in Israel and so on. But not as far as the season goes. We do know that Mashiach will come in the month of Nisan, which is the beginning of spring in, in Israel. And regarding other hemispheres, it doesn't, I mean, wherever you're going to go, it's not, the seasons elsewhere are going to be different. You can't have one season for the whole world, the whole globe. It is a, there's no place in the globe, that, there's no season that's in one place all the time. So it's, if it's winter in the, the southern hemisphere, it's going to be summer in the northern hemisphere. If it's north, summer in the northern hemisphere, it's winter in the, no, summer in the southern hemisphere. Mashiach will come, all these issues will be resolved because wherever you are, whether it's a colder day or a warmer day, will all be basking and benefiting from the warmth of the divine that will be revealed in this world. Okay. One follow-up was this. Follow-up. In last week's episode 366, regarding the Rebbe remains Nasi Ador while not being physically alive, he remains a leader. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, what is the source for the idea that a generation can be led by a Nasi, a leader, a Rebbe who is not physically present in the world, not flesh and blood, not soul and a body? 
Thank you, Rabbi Jacobs. I don't know if there's a source, and frankly, the question you have to ask is, what is a source in general? I mean, we know there's this pastusha demesha b'chol dar Every generation is, has a nosi, a leader, and it's an extension of Moshe Rabbeinu, just like Moshe was the leader in his time. So we know that, that what we're told. But like, who was the Rebbe or the Nasi before the Baal Shem Tov came around? Was there a Nasi that was revealed? Different communities had their leaders. There were times in history where you couldn't necessarily point to a Nasi Hadar. So we do have precedent. Now the fact why God would do it this way, that goes to God's mysteries. The fact that there is no Rebbe now is up to God, not up to us. It's not like we're rejecting someone. If Hashem wanted to send a Rebbe, he would send a Rebbe, another Rebbe. So clearly the Rebbe remains, Mahu Emidu Mishamish, Mahalahal Emidu Mishamish, Afkanu Emidu Mishamish, La Yazir Semarise continues to lead the Ruchnias and gives us strength. If God wants a physical leader, he'll send a physical leader. That's how we look at it. So it's not about sources, it's more of a practical question, really. Okay. See this question. So this is part two. Do we really exist? So last week we spoke about the fact that since God's omnipresence fills fills all of existence, do we really exist? So Chassidus talks about it and we discussed the Maimer from the Rebbe Marash, the proof from Bereshi's Bara and the proof from, from Achiz Sanaim. I'm not going to go over that. That was last week's episode. You can check that out. But I want to go with a few more questions regarding this. We also spoke about the Sikha from the Rebbe Shabbos Parashim Mishpotim, Tovshen Chav where he explains the end of uh, fourth Perik in Shari Yuchid Vamuna, Tzimtzum Nikra Kalim, to explain that the Tzimtzum is not just a concealment, that it actually has substance. So there's an actual existence of this world. So even for those that the concealment doesn't affect, there's still need to affect and impact the world that we know that exists. So God created an existing reality. How is it possible for the world to exist and not burn up, so to speak, or be annihilated and consumed by the divine energy? That's the symptom. That's what he explains in Shariachid Vamuna, that he conceals the presence. But but that concealment is also an existing entity. It's not just the absence of light. So existence exists. The truth of existence is that it's divine. But God concealed that element for us to be able to be independent, to have an independent consciousness and do our work of revealing the divine that's already here embedded in existence. And when you reveal it, existence doesn't get annihilated. It, it sees its purpose. It's like the existence will see the hand within the glove. The glove will feel the hand inside the glove. The other Every creation will sense and feel the creator's force within it. So in this part two, let's go through a few more questions. If there's nothing except for God, so we say, less asar There's no place empty of him. He fills all of existence. And we are only programmed to think that we exist from our perspective, but from the true perspective, there's nothing but God. Then is it fair to say we are really part of God? And if so, why don't we have godly power, such as the power to create through dibur, through speech, why can't we say let Mashiach be revealed now and through our powers of Dibu it will happen? Hold on. That's a big jump to say. To say that the godly reality is the only reality and existence 
is really an extension of that. So first of all, it doesn't say that the world is godly. The world is, energy within the world is godly. But it's not revealed godliness, God forbid. Atzillus is revealed godliness. When you do a mitzvah in this world, and Mashiach comes, there'll be revealed godliness. Right now, we don't see that godliness. So even though in truth, it's really godly energy, that doesn't make us God. That just means that we are a product of godly energy and all of our existence is really godliness. The words of Hashem, and so on. So to jump and say that we should be, that we're really part of God and therefore we have godly power? No. We say that a neshama is a chelik elekame malmamish. The soul has a divine personality. God infused it with divinity. So it has the power to achieve things. But it's still also not God. doesn't make it God. It means it's a part of godliness. And godliness manifests in it, as opposed to other parts of the world which are just created by God. So we can bring godliness into this world. And yes, our dibur therefore has strength. But, the, but it's not the strength of God himself. It's the strength of the godliness within our soul. And God is giving us his strength and say, I'm giving you the strength to bring me, my presence and my revelation into this world. In Pasha Bereshis, we read about God creating the world. But where, what was there before creation? Was there nothing? Was there chaos? And if so, is chaos something? What, what did God do to keep occupied before he created the world? Okay, so first of all, it's, to wrap your head around this is not so simple. It's similar to the question the Maggot asks, so what, 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 um, why did God not create the world earlier? And he answers, because man itself is a creation, time itself is a creation, there was no earlier. So in a sense, the world is a self-contained reality, but It's limited. Like we say, God is the space of the universe. He occupies the entire space of the world. The space of the world is not God. Basically, the, the opposite of pantheism, Spinoza's pantheism, God is nature, nature is God. God is nature, but nature is not God. So think of the universe as a piece of art that the great artist, the divine cosmic artist painted. God painted a painting. Now, the only difference is a painting is outside of the artist. God's painting is part, is within. But the art is only an expression, a one expression of the divine. So anything outside of that art, what we call before the art, or what you're saying like before creation, what was there before, there is no before. Before our levels, before that art was created. Art can only understand its parameters within that piece of art. That's its box, so to speak. That which is outside of the box is the divine that's beyond this piece of art. Maybe other pieces of art, maybe beyond art altogether, beyond everything altogether. So time and space as we know it is contained in its so-called box of time and space, and there is no before. And so when you say before creation, you mean a higher level than the art? Yes, a higher level than the art exists right now too. It's the same godliness that didn't change when he created the art, he did not change. He remains the same God. So now there's a piece of art that we occupy. That's the world that we know, the universe we know. There was no chaos, because chaos is also a part of creation. But Eishin is and then says, 
In the Milan Stalschlus, Toyu is a world that comes after Ak, Akudim, Nakudim, Vrudim, after Akudim. So it's a world. So even chaos is also a, a dimension in part of Seder Stalschlus. What did God occupy? First of all, he doesn't have to be occupied. That's all human terms. God is God, and there's no, what is he, what is he occupied now on those levels? It's God. He doesn't need to be occupied with something. Even though there are my mother Chazal, it says that when after God created the world, what's he doing now? He says, he's making marriages. But that's already, as God manifests, of course, in Seyed Yishtashos. And finally, Rabbi, I just spoke to you on the phone, and you said to email. My question is, what does Chassidus say as to the ultimate reality of the individual neshama, especially in light of Hashem's absolute oneness? Focusing on the latter fact can lead to a degree of self-effacement that seems sometimes much more disheartening than otherwise, i.e. that there cannot be truth in, there cannot in truth be any creation including oneself. Thanks. Well, as we've discussed, that's not correct. It's true that God's absolute oneness, but that absolute oneness chose and decided to create an independent consciousness through tzimtzum, so that's why it makes sense to us, because if there was no concealment, it would be something that would be so miraculous that God is here and we're here, so the tzimtzum explains the concealment, but there is an entity and has divine powers to transform the world, to make it one again and recognize that absolute oneness in existence. I'm going to be discussing this more, actually, I actually discussed, I discussed this more earlier today in a special tribute to the Shleshim of Abiel that you can watch. It's already it's a recorded. You can watch the recording on is there, is there existence in the face of the divine reality? Talk more about this in more detail. So check that out. Okay, with that we conclude My Life, Chassidus Applied, episode 367. Everyone have a good Chedeshel, continuing Chedeshel, the Aved of El, in all the three Kavim, the three pillars, Teir Aved, Mils Chasodim, Tshuva, and Geula, and maybe Bizeche, Taksivich, Simeteva, and above all the Geula, Mitis Veshlema, long before Rosh Hashanah comes immediately. Thank you and be well. This program is brought to you by My Life, Chasidis Applied. Please help us continue our programs. Make even a small contribution at chasidisapplied.com slash donate.